before we begin, let's just take a moment for prayer and uh, put ourselves in front of the throne of grace. Ask that the Lord give us the correct understanding of this verse because it's easy to get, get it mixed up. So we want the right understanding and hopefully we'll remember it and have the right application of it. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your blessings, for your tests, for your opportunities. Father, we thank you that we are part of of the bride of your Son. What a blessing that is, that we are adopted into your family. Another great blessing. Father, you have given us precious and magnificent promises that we can become partakers of your nature. And so, Father, we pray that as we look into this passage today, that you will show us how this all fits together so that we may get a better understanding of what you go through, and, Father, also a better understanding of how we are to interact with one another. So, Father, we come to you today asking for wisdom as to how these verses are to be understood and how they're to be applied. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the book of James, and we'll start reading from verse 1, and it says, What are the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. So he asks a question, what is the source? And then he answers it. And that's frequently done, especially in the early part of the New Testament. This is James, the earliest book <coughs> excuse me, of the New Testament. He asks a question and then he answers it because he doesn't want us to answer it wrong. So he gives us the correct answer. Then he lists four of the pleasures of humanity and the results of these pleasures. In James 4.2, you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. Now, obviously, it's not literal murder every time, but there's a mental attitude murder that hates other people that don't fulfill their needs or their desires or the way that they want to do it. So they end up hating their brother, which is mental attitude murder. Murder. He says, you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Okay, these are temptation, lust of man. You're envious. You want what somebody else has. Okay, and you don't get it, so you fight and quarrel. He said that's part of the way the sin nature works. works. And you do not have because you do not ask. Sometimes that's the problem. You don't ask the Lord for it and don't ask humbly, I tell you. Oh. And he says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So you can spend it on your pleasures. Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches and I must make amends. There's a few of you that know that song and know every word of that song back from Janis Joplin's and Joplin in the 60s. So we, we can go back a long way there. But he says, you ask because you want to spend it on your pleasures. You ask, you don't get it. It's kind of like, you know, a 12-year-old wanting the keys to the car. It's just not a good thing. And our Heavenly Father uh, doesn't answer prayers a lot of times uh, with a yes answer like we want him to and often try to manipulate him to do. Now, the result of these desires is a hostility toward God because one has become a friend of the world. James 4.4 You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's believers too. Now, we have been saved while we were yet enemies. Romans chapter 5. But we don't want to live like we are still better friends with the world than we are the Almighty. And he says, if you want to take that position as a believer, you basically have come down on the side of the enemies of the Almighty. Now, God desires the fellowship of relationship. In verse 5, he says, Do you not think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he made to dwell in us. So he's not addressing unbelievers here. He is addressing believers because the Spirit does not dwell in unbelievers. It doesn't do that. So here is we, the the Holy Spirit and the Father. They're wanting to communicate, and who's the who's the problem? We are. Okay, we tend to get in the way. 
Our flesh tends to get in, in the way. In verse 6, he also gives grace beyond this salvation and is designed to bring down our arrogance. Now, arrogance is listed in the top seven seven deadly sins of Proverbs 6. They're, they're, it's, when you start looking at sin list, you find arrogance right at the top of it. It's interesting where you find it. Romans 12, first two verses. Present your bodies living on... You know the verse right there. But in verse 3, it's a warning against arrogance. Because what is the problem against... Why don't we do this? Because we think we know better than God. And we're afraid what God might do with us if we present our bodies a living, holy sacrifice. There's a fear that, that sets in. But he says he gives a greater grace. This is above and beyond the grace, saving grace that that got us into heaven. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but he is grace to the humble. So if this greater grace, this ongoing grace, this grace that we are to live by, it's a a greater grace. Once this this was the key verse for what some call super grace. That's where the verse came from is right out of James chapter 4 and verse 6. He gives an abounding grace. It's called, grace is called by many different things, but he does do it. But what is the enemy of that grace of the Christian life? Our own arrogance. That's what gets in the way right here. Now verse A, or point F is where we left off. We have ten commands. And these ten commands contain three promises to be found in them. Now, when we go through and look at these, I know sometimes, and we'll, we'll talk about it, sometimes we have issues with some of the comments that are made here. But these are commands. There's 60 commands in a little book with five chapters in it. James got started off with uh, in the command role because people were used to commands were they not and now the law had been set aside except for the the principles sociological principles of the law it had been set aside so now what how do you live what then should we do james 4 7 we're going to read them all at once and then we're going to break them down it says submit to god submit resist the devil that's the second thing we do And what happens? First promise, he will flee from you. But you have to stand up against him. Draw near to God. Hmm. And he will draw near to you. You see where this is just put responsibility? Galatians 6 calls us to help other people. But we help other people by saying there's some things you need to do. Don't become codependent on me. Don't look to me for all your answers. There are things that you need to take a stand for and you need to do yourself. So there's always a balance found in the Word of God. Don't go one way or another to an extreme until you stop and think, where did the Lord put the balance in? Okay, People are responsible to make good decisions themselves. And then he says, and let's see that conditional promise. You draw near to him, he will draw near to you. It's not maybe he will on a good day. It is he will draw near to you. So do we believe that? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Isn't he talking to believers? Didn't we establish that back earlier? He desires a spirit that is in us. So he's talking to believers here. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Probably had some people by the time of 46 A.D. when this book was written, 13 years into the church age, and they're probably starting to say, well, Jesus took all of our sins away. Therefore, there is no such thing as sin any longer. That's what prompted John to write his epistles about 50 years later to deal with what is called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism had crept into the church, and Gnostic means all about knowledge. Okay, They thought they were so smart. But there is still an issue of sin. He wrote 1 John 2, My children, I write to you that you might not sin. So yes, what did he write in 1 John 1? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, realized there are going to be people misuse and abuse that verse. 
and they have throughout the course of history the, the confession of sins I've seen it twisted and turned other ways besides that but it basically is a way to say well I get a pass on all my sins well guess what they've been paid for but sin in the life of a believer is not a desirable thing now that should be clear from any part of the New Testament that you read and purify your hearts he says you double minded you know James was such a diplomat wasn't he he just come here guys I want you to gather around we're going to sing kumbaya together and I want to and I, I want you to think about this and that's not the way it's laid out is it James is full bore on preacher right here and he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it's being written down he says purify your hearts you double minded be miserable Oh, that's one we like to skip over, isn't it? And mourn. Oh, there's another one we like to skip over. That's getting too emotional, isn't it? And if we get too emotional with these things, then we can't be the Stoics that we would like to be or the Gnostics that we would like to be that's able to act like Mr. Spock on Star Trek and put all of our emotions to the side. Sorry, but that's not the way God made human beings. He made us with emotions so what is this be miserable and mourn and weep and then he says let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom now isn't that a downer for a Sunday morning (sighs) I think James presupposes people had maybe read or heard of Ecclesiastes 3 sometime along the way you know, and now we have no excuse because the birds sang it back in the 60s or 70s. A time for war, a time for peace, a time for joy, a time for sorrow. What did it say? There's a time for all things under the sun. And he says, humble yourselves. The last one. In the presence of the Lord. The only way to humble yourself is to get the arrogance out. And then what does it say? Third promise here. He will exalt you. Okay? So let's break these Let's break these down. What are these ten commands? And what do they have to say? And we're going to look at them from what the Greek words are that were used there. And the first one is submit to God. Now, <clears throat> when, we, when we look at these ten carefully... We see they're referring to areas of repentance, if you will. I'm talking about repentance as metanoia, as a change of mind. That's the word repentance. That's how it's. That's what it means. Metanoia means literally a change of, of mind. So it starts there, right there in the soul, where we say, "Okay, I'm thinking this way. I need to think this way." Okay, that's what repentance is about, and it's repentance from arrogance. In that verse six. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Okay, It's all about humbling ourselves. And he says, um, it's the main cause, arrogance is the main cause of spiritual problems. And you can, you can show that all the way through the scripture, really. You know, what did the, how did the Jews decide to disobey? Because they thought they knew better than God. It didn't make any difference what it was. It was all comes down to The Jews thinking, we know better than God. And then came the church, and what happened? The church was a little bit humble to begin with, but our nature, our sin nature, is inherently arrogant. We are full of ourselves. And uh, I think it's pretty pretty obvious. Now, submit to God is hupotasso. I love the Greek words. Tasso means to arrange. And hupo means under the authority of. Hupotasso. So, gentlemen, whenever you go in to clean out the garage, which I think somebody just did not too long ago, they go in to clean out the garage, and the wife is standing there saying, I want this over here and this over here. You're arranging under the authority of. That's hupotasso at work. Okay? You're getting it fixed. 
Now, I know a man that went in one time, rearranged his wife's kitchen because he didn't like the way it was done. And uh, and uh, I guess he assumed that that was his particular role in life, but he didn't arrange it under her authority. So it became a bone of contention for a long time because he assumed a position that some would argue whether or not he really had. Is he the, the head of the house? Not arguing that at all. Scripture makes it very clear that he is. But did he treat his wife with honor? Did he treat her as a queen? How did he treat her along the way? Hmm. Now, <clears throat> these commands, submit to God. So first thing is the principle, arrange your life under his authority. That's what it means. Arrange your life under his authority. Now, what does that mean? Is that just a nebulous type of thing? Well, to arrange your life under his authority, does he want you to read his word regularly? Our daily bread? I would say yes. That's pretty clear. If you're going to arrange your life, find time to look into his word, to study his word every day. It's our daily bread. You want to arrange your life under his authority? How about a little time of prayer? Or how about a long time of prayer? You think maybe that's part of submitting to God? Now, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of people over the course of my life. I used to try to sell Bible books door to door. In fact, I did sell Bible books door to door. Danny knows what I'm talking about. I went door to door and I ran into some real interesting characters uh, when you knock on a door, if they let you in your house, you wonder if you should go into their house. <laughs> but you go into their house, and I, this lady said, well, I asked God one time, and that's it. I don't want a pestering. Uh-huh. And I'm, you know, I'm a kid in college. Don't know up from down spiritually really at the time. Just trying to sell Bible books is all I'm trying to do. And I'm going... Okay, I have no answer for that. <laughs> Let's go back to the idle bail pad on page 94 over here and, and take a look at that. But arrange your, your uh, submit to God. Why didn't that do that? Arrange your life under his authority. That means that our prayers being lifted up to God. What, what else might we do? Maybe set time for serving other people in the process. Uh, maybe we can set time apart for assembling ourselves with other people Hebrews 10.25 forsake not the assembling of yourselves together I mean here is the, the submission to God what about each as he, let each man give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly nor out of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver how about setting that part aside where we arrange it under the authority of see Submit to God starts right there. See what he wants and then seek to fulfill it in your life. The second one is draw near to God and that's the first promise. Nope, resist the devil. Excuse me. And he'll flee from you. Hmm. is the word. Which means to take a stand against the devil. Now, if we were to go mano a mano, one-on-one with the devil, we're probably going to lose. He is stronger than we are. That's just the very nature of angels. He's stronger than we are. He's smarter than we are. But who's on? whose side are we on? So it says take a stand against him. I think that's mentally, verbally, physically, if necessary. That's what we're supposed to do. It doesn't doesn't limit it here. Take a stand against him. You do that and it says he'll flee from you. Why? Because he's got a lot easier prey. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That verse used to bother me and especially if you ever get to hear a Maasai warrior from Kenya talk about lion hunting because that's, that's what they do. Lions don't growl before they pounce. They growl after they've captured their prey. And one that is growling beforehand, it means the prey is too easy. It's too easy. And so, 
He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You stand against him, he's got way too many other people to go after. So he's not really going to bother with you. He might put his forces on you, and yeah, he can make life difficult, but stand him in, stand against him in your attitude. And how do you do that? You, I think in part you learn the different worldviews that are going on out there. What is trying to snatch you away from a worldview that God is the sovereign, that God is absolute righteousness and justice, that God is the lawgiver, that he's the one who says what is right and what's wrong, that he establishes the moral code. When you start getting pulled against that, that's the devil at work. They call them anti-theistic theories, and he's behind every single one of them. So stand against him. If you start hearing all the evolutionary junk that's floating around out there, stand against it. Take a stand against it. We've had enough people and enough Christians embrace the wrong attitudes that now they've come into the churches and they're dividing churches up all over the world. Dividing into different segments, if you will. Stand against the evil one in your attitude. The third point is draw near to God. This is a gizo. I, I like this word, just what it means, draw near. The second promise, and he will draw near to you. So you stand against the devil, and he leaves. And in the process, you draw near to God, and he draws near to you. Now notice where the action needs to take place here. It's us. Sometimes we sit down to try and help people and they ask for our help and they come to us and all that and they don't want to do anything. They just want people to make them feel good about the mistakes they're making. Instead of saying, you know, it's time you stood up against the devil. Time you stood firm. Time you said no more. It's not going to happen anymore. It's time that you made that decision. And then what do you do? Draw near to God. Now how do you draw near? Some people, some Christians like certain types of music and don't like other types of Christian music. You get to choose. That's all I can tell you. If it's doctrinally sound, you get to choose. Whether you listen to it or not. There are going to be different kinds of music that touch each, each one of us in different ways. And sometimes music is a great way to draw near to the Lord. We sang that song this morning, Here I Am to Worship. Here I Am to Bow Down. And we start looking at, at things going bow down. I can tell you, at one time in my life, my Christian life, I was so stinking arrogant, I wouldn't get on my knees to pray. That took uh, an action. But what was I? I was holding God off. I wasn't holding Satan off because I wouldn't get on my knees to pray. Because I knew that I didn't have to get on my knees to pray. Because getting on my knees to pray, if it was all a show, didn't mean anything any. Anyway, I had the doctrine all right. But then the question, was I humble enough that I could have actually gotten on my knees and prayed? So, what did the Lord do? He put us through some difficulties that put us there on our knees. You get humbled. You can choose to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And He may choose to humble you under His mighty hand. But you draw near to Him. See, that's the best and easiest way to do it. Go to Him. Say, Lord, I want to hear from you. And don't wait for some special voice from heaven. Because if you got one, you'd probably go, huh, what is that? like most of the Jews did whenever Jesus was walking the earth. Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the multitude thought it thundered. Instead, we start, how do you draw near to him? Music? Prayer? You're a priest. So look at what the priests did. All through all the priesthood, they offered up sacrifices. You're a priest, your sacrifice is you. Not any animals or anything. You offer up you. The sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13 verses 15 and 16. The sacrifice of praise. 
Praise can be music. Praise can be good words. They're called blessings. Eulogeo is the word that is there. You speak good words to other people. You can draw near to God by bringing good words about God to other people. And what happens? He'll draw near to you. This goes so well with what we're looking at in 2 Peter. And we're going to get into uh, this this next week in 2 Peter about areas of virtue. But draw near to God. You take the action. Why? Because guess what? He's already there. That's a little hint. He's omnipresent. He never went anywhere. We're the ones that travel away from him. So repent, change your mind, turn around, do what you need to, get your eyes fixed on him, and try to seek him with all of your heart. That Those um, promises are found all over the Old Testament. And it said if you'll seek him, you're going to find him. If you don't seek him, though, the converse, what makes you think you're going to find him? Sometimes he's right there, and you won't even know it. Draw near to him. The fourth one is... Um, how about the third one? The principle here is pursue a relationship with the Almighty. Pursue a relationship with the Almighty. Theology is designed to help us enjoy the relationship. Theology that doesn't want a relationship with the Lord is empty. For what purpose do I know about the hypostatic union? Just so I can impress my friends and talk about things and use great big words or do I want to know the God man see if any man is willing to do his will then he will know of the teaching whether it's of God or I speak for myself that's Jesus speaking in John 7 17 are you willing to do what he wants you to do if you start doing it you're drawing near to him and the result you're going to get to see him at work in ways you never thought imaginable but pursue a relationship with the Almighty. Cleanse your hands. Now to a Jew, this was pretty easy. Katharizo. Make them, sanctify them. Uh, they had a good idea from the bronze laver. They knew what it meant about the ceremonial washing of hands. They, they overdid it, of course, like they did most things. But cleanse your hands means to basically remove the overt temptations to sin. Because in the bronze laver, they washed their hands, they looked in there, and they went, oh yeah, I'm a mess here. And they washed their hands. Peter got his feet washed, you might remember in John 13. Whenever he's, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. He's speaking of inheritance. You're going to lose your inheritance, Peter. And then Peter said, well, good, give me a bath. And he said, no, you've already been saved. You don't need a bath. What you need is your feet washed. What you need is the humility to let him do it. The king of kings and lord of lords. He didn't appreciate then, that night he didn't. He was humble by it. But he still was grasping to try and understand who this man named Jesus was. Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? But cleanse your hands. Get rid of the overt temptations to sin. The things that pull you toward the, the sin nature and those type of activities and actions and thoughts. Remove them. The overt temptations to sin. Probably one example would be pornography. Because there are a lot of people that think, hey, that's fine and good. Well, pornography is not a good thing. It is mental attitude uh, fornication, one way or another. So if you have a problem with that, get rid of it. Duh, cleanse your hands. Don't keep putting the things in front of you that lead you down a rabbit hole you don't want to go down. Why do I do what I don't want to do? Well, get rid of the stuff that keeps taking you in that direction. And that's what he's talking about. Cleanse your hands. The next one is to purify your hearts. Well, this is a little bit more difficult, isn't it? Because cleanse your hearts. Okay, cleaning your hands, washing your hands. We all wash our hands regularly, daily, hopefully. 
we we do all that. We try to stay clean. Purify your hearts is another step of difficulty, isn't it? Another step of difficulty. Because the word is agnizo. It means to try and get all the impurities out. Now, are we sinners? Are we going to be sinners from now on? Yes. We're going to be sinners till we get this new body. That's, that's the way it's going to happen. But we can work on it. See, we shouldn't like to leave it that way is the problem. The fifth point is the principle is adjust your life and soul to his holiness. Removing, didn't we just say double-mindedness? A double-minded man? Uh, to adjust to his holiness. Now what is that? Certain things are righteous, certain things are not. Peter had written earlier in the first epistle that he wrote, Be ye holy as your Father is holy. Hmm. He gave us his righteousness. He gave us his righteousness so that we could become righteous. He imputed his righteousness to us, but what did the Holy Spirit bring when he moved inside of you? Because the Holy Spirit's God, so he brought his righteousness, right? So why is the Spirit and the flesh at war with one another? Galatians 5.16 Because our sin nature doesn't want to do righteous things, and the Spirit wants us to do righteous things, and so there's a war going on. And we don't need to be double-minded trying to live with a foot in both worlds. The word righteous is a word that means straight. It's the root meaning of the word righteous. Like to make a straight line from here to that back door. Some of you may be wanting to go on out the back door by now anyway. But <laughs> a straight line all the way to the back door. And it's easy for us to say, well, walk the straight line. Well, you know, if we're spiritually intoxicated, we can't walk the straight line, can we? Scripture makes that clear. But what we would like to do is keep one foot on the line and see how far we can get the other one off the line. And still say, stay close to the center line. That's not what he's called us to do. We don't need to see how far we can get away or what we can get away with. We need to try and decide we want to see how close we can walk that line. That straight line. That is what he's talking about here. Purify your hearts. Is sin become as abhorrent to us as it is to God? The culture we live in, it's pretty clear. It has not to this culture. It has been embraced. We want to make a difference in the last days. We don't need a self-righteous morality that's going around, but we need the morality that came from God. And we need to adhere to it. Can we fix anybody else? No. Can we minister to other people? That's Galatians 6. A brother that's caught in a trespass. If you don't think there's any trespasses, how are you going to help a brother caught in one? Or how are you going to help him properly? Adjust your life and soul to his holiness. Removing double-mindedness. Be miserable. If you started asking a lot of people on the street, you're going to do a Jesse Waters man on the street or something, or a Jay Leno. I love Jay Leno's man on the street. And he'd come up and say, uh, when, when was America discovered? And they have no clue who or when or what happened. But they, they come up and you ask, what do they want? I just want to be happy. I just want to feel good about myself. That's the answer you get most frequently. And here is James saying, be miserable. Taliparao is a, the word that is used there. It's a word that means to be afflicted. It's used in James 4.9 here, in the middle voice, to afflict yourselves, basically. It's derived from the word talao that means to bear or undergo, and poros, which is a word that means a hard substance or callous. It metaphorically came to signify that which is miserable, to undergo difficulty. 
Now, what does this mean? Does this mean we're going to beat ourselves up? That we're going to pour these things over our head? No. Whenever you start looking at how the word is used and, and the rest of scripture, you undergo whatever is de- difficulty is necessary to make the change. That's a decision. Be miserable. Because why do I do what I don't want to do? Because I like to do it. Galatians 5.16 We do the things that, that we don't want to do. And it says, so that you may not do the things that you please. This war between the flesh and the spirit, there's things we like to do we shouldn't be doing. But undergo whatever difficult... If it is a sin we are talking about, then undergo the difficulty necessary to make the change. And what about mourn? Oh, it gets worse here, doesn't it? He's not done yet. But mourn means to... Pentheo is the word. It means to mourn for or to lament. It's used of mourning in general. It's used of sorrow over the death of a loved one. It is used of mourning concerning the overthrow of Babylon and the Babylonian system in Revelation 18. It is used as sorrow for sin or sorrow for condoning it, 1 Corinthians 5.2. That's where Corinth was permitting flagrant immorality to function in in the church. And uh, it's used of grief for those in a local church who show no repentance for evil that is committed in 2 Corinthians 12.21. So it is used for a mourning that is there. But again... See, not every sin is going to need this. But there's some sin that gets hold of us. If we're going to do battle with it and be holy as he is holy, it's not going to be an easy process. Because as we sin, we build this scar tissue, talaporeo word. We tend to build the scar tissue, and then it just becomes a part of our lifestyle and who we are. And there's no desire to correct it. There's none at all. So <clears throat> it, it is, uh, I think, seen as embrace the appropriate emotions commensurate to the problem. Appropriate emotions. How you know what they are? Pray for wisdom. But you don't, and no, this is not going to, you have to feel sorry for your sin in order for them to be taken care of. Because it says simply, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But part of this cleansing, say the word cleanse. Cleanse your hands. It's it. Okay? That's part of it. Because sometimes to get rid of the, the, the problem is a process and it takes some time. So be willing to undergo the appropriate emotions that are, that are commensurate with the problem. The next one is clio, the word for weep. This is used of any kind of loud expression of grief. It's used especially of the grief of mourning for the dead, Matthew 2.18. It's used in exhortation, several different exhortations. Clio is a loud expression of grief. And again, it's building up. What he's saying is do what needs to be done uh, to get rid of the problem. Now, if you draw near to God, won't He draw near to you? you? Say, Lord, I got this problem. I got this problem I need to get rid of. Will He draw near to you? I can give you a personal example. Uh, a lot of you know that for a lot of years I was uh, I was hooked on nicotine. I smoked. I liked it. I snuck around. I lied about it, trying to hide it. So I know how addictions work. And I know the length that people would go to to keep them from other people and to hide them. And finally, I had the courage while walking and praying one night, Lord, please do what you have to do to get me to quit. Because I know it's slavery. I know it's no good for me. It's no good for anybody else. It's a poor witness. I know that. So, Lord, do what you got to do. 
And that shortly <laughs> thereafter was my first heart attack. Don't pray it if you're not serious. <laughs> that's, that's another lesson I learned <laughs> from that. And I decided after I got out of there, because I was only in the hospital 24 hours. Yeah, they went in, they put a balloon in, they found out later that wasn't going to work, and they had to go back and do bypass a month, month later. So they put this balloon in there and, and sent me home the next day. I didn't want to go home. Why? Because I knew where the cigarettes were hidden. Yeah. And my son knew where they were hidden. And he got rid of them. <laughs> and by the grace of God, I didn't smoke. Three weeks later, I got hit again with a heart attack. Because I was out walking again. I used to walk and smoke. I felt like the walking would offset the smoking. You know how, how we can do such foolish things like that. I felt like the walking would offset the smoking. And so I was out walking once again. And I had another pain in my chest. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. Because you find out about heart deals. If it starts hurting and you take an aspirin and it quits, it's a heart problem that you have. Same thing with nitro. You get that pain in there and you take one, yeah, it is an issue of the heart. So I ended up back in there, another heart cath, and, and two or three weeks later, the, the bypass surgery. And the Lord, because I was thinking about smoking again, because it was a trigger mechanism. Be miserable. I was miserable. I hated to light one up. I didn't want to light one up. I knew I didn't need to light one up. Why am I doing this? Why am I so foolish? But I couldn't handle it. So you draw near to the Lord. Miserable. Okay? It had control of me. I didn't have control of it. We know that's the way addiction works. And mourn. Yeah, there was some mourning involved. And then it got worse <laughs> with a heart attack. But it was what I needed was what I needed. Be miserable and mourn and weak. Take your emotions to the extreme if necessary. You don't have to weep and wail and gnashing of teeth in order to be forgiven of sins because he does that. But you want to really do battle with it. Be willing to undergo what is necessary to do battle with the sin. Now let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Oh, that's a good one. What's that thing talking about? He's talking about reversing the improper emotional responses. Because we're really good at this, aren't we? If the other team loses their starting quarterback, oh, we can laugh over that. Is that proper to do that? No. There are Laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep. And if you're laughing when you should be weeping, change it. If we see things backwards, change it. This is not as easy as it, as it sounds because we are really programmed to, um, you know, to laugh at a lot of crazy things. Now, I know the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. I've read that psalm. The futility of man and everybody trying to gain his approbation and to move themselves ahead and all that. Yeah, it's a, it's a mocking laugh at all the futility of man trying to, to do themselves. But he's saying, get your emotions the way they should be. You can laugh with those who laugh. You can weep with those who weep. And it's perfectly fine to do that. Lost you know what three police officers here recently in Oklahoma City and there was indeed weeping from people that didn't know them why were doing their job when things went south now some people laughed served them right 
They don't like the police out there at all, except who they when they need 911, who they call. Okay. Reverse improper emotional responses and humble yourselves. The tenth command with a third promise. Humble yourself. Get the right view of yourself. Found in Philippians 2, 3, you have, and 4, you have the right view of yourself. Okay, it doesn't mean you put yourself down. It doesn't mean you're down on yourself. It doesn't mean you exalt yourself. What it does say is you take a look at you just like God looks at you. <clears throat> you're a sinner saved by grace. That's how he views us. He views us as family. We are nothing more than sinners saved by grace. And we need to constantly keep that in our mind. Every time I go back through one of these books of the New Testament and I see Paul writing, I can see that coming through all of what he's saying. Paul knows that he is a mess. And apart from the Lord, he is nothing. But with the Lord, Philippians 4.12, he's everything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Third promise, you humble yourselves. See, draw near to God. First of all, first, first promise, resist the devil, he'll flee. Second promise, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Third promise, humble yourself, he will exalt you. We don't need to seek fame for ourselves. The <clears throat> principle here, recognize you're in the presence of the Lord. Have you ever just stopped to think? Have you ever decided just to pray and all the lights may be flipped off or something like this with the now I lay me down to sleep and you're getting ready to do your, your closing prayer and you just stop for a second and think, the Lord's in the room with me. Is that humbling? I would think it would be because the one thing about omnipresence is not often taught he is the same place with the same intensity. Everywhere, inside and outside of the universe. That's what omnipresence is about. To think that he's not stretched too far, he can't reach to you. He is right there. He is right here in this room with us now. To even think about that is humbling. Recognize you're in the presence of the Lord. And you know what? He'll exalt you. Because you are giving him honor. The idols are gone when that happens. Now the greater the depth and stranglehold that a trespass has on the believer, the greater the intensity of the change of mind and correction. That's how the degree of difficulty, if you will, to make the necessary changes. Temptations that man has succumbed to that have become a lifestyle will stand in the way of a true repentance. A true change of mind and thus fellowship with God. I know some people decide they're going to have a life of sin. But they're going to confess it all the time. How do you ever get in fellowship if you spend your life confessing that which you are not correcting? It, it doesn't fit well theologically or any other, any other way. It makes no reasonable logical sense if you're still involved in the sin and you confess it. And there's no change. So there is, with a change of mind, maybe I need to do something a little different along the way. People want fame. Uh, if they're really heavy into it and all they want is for people to recognize them and appreciate them and love them and all that sort of stuff. Fame, yeah. How deep are you into it? Being able to step back. Some great sports athletes get addicted to the fame and then whenever they turn the lights off and the cheering stops they can't handle it when they're out because it wasn't really the love of the game so much as the love of the fame that was the problem how about fortune I see people that uh, that's they're, they're taught to love money I've been through a couple of courses and and uh, read a lot of books a long time ago. The Magic of Thinking Big being one of those books. And you read those books and one of them, I remember, I forget which one it was, but one of them said, 
what you need to do is get a money clip. You need to put a, put some money into that money clip, and you need to rub it at different times during the day, and think about how much more you would like to have. Now I'm a goofy little kid reading that out, trying to sell Bible books of all things, and I looked at that and I went, "That's trying to teach me how to love money." That's exactly what it was doing. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit got through my thick skull back then and said, there's something wrong with this. And so this this type of thing, fortune. People might know that, hey, you need to be a little more honest with what you're doing, your pricing of goods, all those different things. You need to be a little better at doing that. But the deeper you're into it, the harder it is. How about power? Whew. Sure be nice if, if our <laughs> entire legislative system would humble itself under the mighty hand of God, wouldn't it? Because guess what's going to happen one day? They're going to be humbled. It's happened with every nation you can imagine from ancient Suber to Egypt to Assyria to Greece to Rome to Persia and it will happen to us. You can count on it. And pleasure. The addiction to pleasure. Some people live their life so that they can go out and have fun. And the only thing that draws them all over is, what, what am I going to do this weekend? Or when is the new iPad 14 coming out? I think that's the latest thing that they're driving me nuts, wanting me to... Give me a free one, and I'm going, there ain't no free lunches on these things. <laughs> and a, a flip phone. Hey, you can get a new flip phone for free. And I go, didn't we leave those 15 years ago? <laughs> Am I missing something here? You know, is it really a communicator to beam us up to the mothership now <laughs> or what? But resist the devil. Draw near to God. Humble yourself. Enjoy the promises because the devil will flee from you. That's what's going to happen. God will draw near to you. These ten things, we try to put them in operation in our life. The devil's going to flee from us. God will draw near to us, and you're going to be lifted up. That's what the promises say. Is it worth it? I think so. Let's pray. Father, what a good day it has been. Once again, your blessings, your tests, your opportunities set in front of us. And Father, we are indeed so amazingly blessed. And sometimes the blessings uh, actually become more important to us than the blessor. These gifts become more important than the giver. And Father, I pray where we have our priorities messed up. Father, I pray that indeed that you will make them clear to each and every one of us. And I pray also for the courage by the power of the Holy Spirit to start making changes that need to be made. Fathers, we come to you. We come to you asking that you will provide for us opportunities this week to share the gospel and to minister to other people. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.